I have said for many years that I believe that the book of First and Second Thessalonians express the, the ethos, the passion of faithful pastoral ministry, perhaps more vigorously than any other book or books in the New Testament, including those of the pastoral epistles that we normally refer to as 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These books, First and Second Thessalonians, really express the passions of faithful pastoral ministry. As we've been looking at it, not only do we see in these books, as we've been studying them together, what a pastor is to do and what a shepherd is to be, here and especially in these verses that we're looking at this morning and what we saw even last week, here we find insight in what a pastor is to want. What is he to desire? We can all see how this vision of pastoral ministry would be deeply impactful to people like myself or the elders or some of those in our midst who are training for pastoral ministry. You can say, well, I I see why you would be interested in this passage, but, but really, why do we need to belabor the point? Couldn't you have covered maybe the whole chapter in one sermon and moved on to our stuff? What significance should this have for the congregation? Well, we'll think about this carefully. This is not a letter like First and Second Timothy written to a protege, written to a fellow colleague. This is a letter written from a shepherd to a congregation of people. And he is expressing his heart's affections and his drives and his passions for ministry to the flock that he has been shepherding. I mean, consider what Paul wants this text, how he wants it to land on the hearts of the people he's writing to. I mean, their knowing what makes him tick should be an encouragement to them of the spiritual legitimacy of his ministry. He's not in this for himself. He's in this for them. They know of his eternal love for them, his Godward affections for them that are born out of the gospel teaching that he's brought to them. So they should even more feel the the need not to abandon the faith, but to press on. In other words, think of it this way. Knowing what a pastor desires for the flock speaks volumes about the eternal or the temporal nature of what he is working toward in your life. I mean, what is Paul willing to endure and what is he willing to do in order to see that this congregation is presented to the Lord complete in the end? Is this church just to his heart a building block in his quest for his own recognition, success, personal affirmation that he seeks from the culture or cultural significance that he's after for himself? Is that why he does this ministry? He's he's in this for some accolade? Or is his ministry to this flock? Is any pastor, is any elder's ministry to the flock one where your eternal completion, 
your enduring to the end, your loving Christ to the uttermost, your growing in grace until grace is fully formed in you is the passion of his preaching, his relationship with you, his investment in you, his prayers for you, and his persistence with you. The kind of passions a pastor or an elder has with his shepherding ministry will actually shape the eternal, or even we could say the less than eternal, if it's wrong-headed, impact that ministry has on your soul. And even, we could say, as we'll see in this text, your final salvation. That's why you should care about what a pastor cares about in ministry. You should care about what a pastor cares about, what he wants in pastoral ministry. Your eternal soul rests on it. Last week, we considered the kinds of affections that affirm true ministry in verses 17 to 20 back in chapter 2. And in essence, we kind of continue looking at those affections that affirm a true ministry. In essence, we could continue to see those affections in this chapter, and we'll see them throughout the whole of the chapter, all the way through chapter 3. But more than just internal affections that are both personal and eternal, like we saw last week, we see here the shepherd's passionate aspirations What is it that he wants for this flock? What is he passionate to pursue as a shepherd? So these passions that we're going to look at, they tell us why he preaches. These passions that we'll look at tell us why he preaches the way he preaches. Why he's willing to return even, especially the Apostle Paul, to a region that actually was absolutely awash in a city-wide rebellion against him. Why would he want to go back there? What are the passions of a faithful pastor? What does a pastor who's worth following want for the flock in which he's investing? That's what verses 1 to 5 unpack for us. This is an example of what a faithful pastor is passionate about in serving the flock entrusted to him. So this morning, we're going to look at three of those passions, three expressions of what a faithful pastor is passionate about in serving the flock entrusted to him. Now, these are simple. They are simple. But in a world that rewards other things, they are hard. Three different expressions of what a faithful pastor is passionate about in serving the flock entrusted to him. First, a faithful pastor is passionate to strengthen the flock's faith. That's simple, isn't it? To strengthen the flock's faith. As we look at these verses, it's difficult for me as I read them to overstate how zealous Paul is for the young believers in Thessalonica. Remember this about Paul. His passions are not tied to some career decision. This church never paid him for full-time ministry. We learned that back in the first chapter. His passions for them are not tied to an organization used as a monument for his leadership acumen. 
No one in the city of Thessalonica outside of the few Christians who were there would even allow him to show his face within the city limits. His passions are not about trying to build something larger and more influential in the culture because no one in the culture wanted him anywhere around. They hated him. So Paul doesn't care about public recognition. He does not care about stage presence, acceptance, appearance, crowds, budgets, staff loyalty, personal time that he can get on his own, and a host of other issues that tend to weigh on the modern American pastor's mind. He cares about one thing. He cares about the faith of the flock that has been entrusted to him. If they don't have a strong faith, they will not overcome the disturbances of their soul, and that means they may not endure until the end. And then he would find all of that labor, all of that work, all of that hard work and hard work to be nothing more than a vapor, empty, vain. So he cares about one thing, the flock's faith. Look at the way he expresses it. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer. I mean, you remember how personal he felt with this church, as we saw last week, how eternal his affections were for this congregation. When he couldn't stand it any longer, he wanted to get back to them. He could not endure it any longer. That's a very interesting word, stego in Greek. It was used in other literature within the first century world to speak of material that was used to make ships watertight, that kept water from coming in, or it kept the content that was within the ship from leaking out. So when talking about himself, one commentator said this, the image that Paul evokes with this verb is one where he is so full of love and concern for the Thessalonians that he is no longer able to prevent his strong emotions for them from leaking out. I couldn't hold it in any longer. I couldn't endure it. Couldn't hold the affections in check. Couldn't keep his longings bottled up, his expectations, his need to know how they were doing was bursting out of his heart. What kind of passion is that in a pastor? When absent from the flock, he finds himself sleepless at night, wondering about the flock. He's agitated at moments throughout the day, thinking about how they're responding to the issues he knows that they're walking through. He's having a hard time keeping his curiosity about what's happening in their life from driving him to get back and learn every detail that he can. It's what happens to a lot of pastors when they go on vacation. Every pastor needs to go on vacation. But it's hard. Just ask my family. Needs to be a longer vacation because the first few days, like four or five days, it takes a while to come off of that concern, that constant concern that's driving everything that goes on in your week. And to let go of that and to focus on something else. 
all the drive and the scheduling that goes into preparing the sermon and thinking about how this will minister to the flock and the counseling that goes on and the prayer day after day and morning after morning and night after night. It's hard to come off of all of that and just focus on something else. In fact, I I find myself at times, I, I leave a meeting with someone or a counseling session or just an interaction with someone feeling like that's not enough. I need to get back in there. I don't think they got it. I'm not sure that I've helped enough. I want to get back in there to it. It's hard to endure it. That's a little bit of what Paul is feeling and expressing here. So when he couldn't keep his, his heart for them bottled up anymore, what did he do? Well, you, you would think it was, I got a ticket and I went back. No, the text says, we thought it best to be left behind. That, that word could mean abandoned. To be abandoned in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy. You say, well, well, that doesn't sound like he really wants to be back there with them. I mean, isn't he willing to endure suffering on his own behalf so that he could impart his heart and ministry back into this flock that he was with only for a small amount of time? Really? You sent Timothy, the young guy? <laughs> you would think that he, he's bursting out of the seams just to get back there. But if you remember and consider the facts of what was happening in the city because of him, you would likely understand why he didn't. I don't know if we can appreciate how explosive the situation was when a city of around 200,000 people in population was in complete riot over his name. In the conversations that likely went on between Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, there had to be this constant urging of Paul says, I've got to go back, I've got to go back, I've got to go back. It's a little like if you remember George W. Bush on Air Force One on 9-11 keeps saying, we've got to go to Washington and everybody on the plane and everybody in Washington says, you're not going back there right now. It's not safe. That's the situation like here. If you go back, it might do more harm to the church and the Christians there than if you would send Timothy. The reason he won't go back It's not because he doesn't love them. It's because he does love them. It might cause more harm to them if he went back. So we read about the historical situation in Acts 17. After he was run out of Thessalonica, he went south into Berea. We've talked about that. And in Berea, he began to teach the Bible again. Jews from Thessalonica heard that he was there. So they ran down to Berea and they ran him out of that city and they caused a riot again in that city to get him out. And so some men accompanied him all the way down south, even further south into Athens. And he was left there by himself. In Acts 17, it says that he wanted Timothy and Silas to come back to him quickly. They stayed in Berea he went down to Athens. And so Luke probably does not record a visit that Timothy and Silas likely made back to Paul in Athens very briefly because likely Timothy is carrying this letter to the Thessalonians. So it's very likely that Luke did not record a very brief meeting that finally 
Timothy and Silas come down from Berea, make a quick visit, and Paul then dispatches them. Timothy back to Thessalonica, and from what we learn in Philippi and Philippians, Silas is sent back to Philippi where he's ministering to those churches north. And it leaves Paul in Athens by himself. He couldn't go back. He couldn't get back to Thessalonica, so he does the next best thing. He sent the one person on the planet who represented not only his ministry, but actually represented his own heart and his heart for these people, and that's Timothy. Timothy was a convert under Paul's ministry long before they went to Thessalonica, and Paul viewed him as if he were a spiritual son. He says that of him in many places in the New Testament. There was such a deep relationship between Paul and Timothy, that Paul would write of Timothy in Philippians 2.20 that he has no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's why he talks about Timothy. Timothy will have the concern for your welfare that I do and no one else has that kind of concern that I work with. Timothy would later be charged to go back and represent Paul in the embattled church in Corinth. And Paul would say of Timothy, I've sent Timothy to you, 1 Corinthians 4, 17, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ Jesus. There was nobody better suited to remind a church of the ways of Paul, not just what he would teach, but how he felt. No one like Timothy. Timothy went back to represent Paul as an apostle, but also as a fellow brother in the Lord. Let me just say here at this point, you do know that it is to a congregation's benefit that shepherds have these kinds of closely knit colleagues in ministry alongside them. It deepens, it widens, it expands the kind of ministry that one shepherd can have for an entire flock So you should pray, you should actively pray that God would grant our church more pastoral interns. You should pray that God would grant us good, faithful assistance in ministry. You should pray that God brings into our midst and calls from our midst men who are called to pastoral ministry and that they love the flock and they love you because that is to your benefit just as it was for the Thessalonians, when Paul could not be there, Timothy could be there. He refers to Timothy as our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Our brother, because Timothy was there when this church was born and birthed in the ministry of the apostle Paul, but he also calls him our fellow worker, which is a technical term actually. It's a technical term that Paul uses of a group of people who traveled with him, who were actually church planters alongside with him, and likely brothers who assisted him in representing his apostolic ministry to the churches when he could not be there with them. This term is used of people like Urbanus and Apollos and Titus and Epaphroditus. There's an unnamed group of co-workers in Philippians 4, 3, there's a man, not Jesus of Nazareth, but another man named Jesus, if you could only imagine being named Jesus. He was a fellow worker of Paul. 
Aristarchus, Barnabas' cousin Mark, Philemon, Demas, Luke, all these are called fellow workers because they, they worked alongside Paul as he planted churches, invested in himself and other people. And the work that Timothy is engaged in is not merely delivering the letter for Paul. Paul doesn't see it that way. Timothy is not Paul's lackey. He's not just his mere assistant to deliver the material, to read it out loud. It says in the text, he's a fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. He's a gospel preacher. He's a gospel servant. And just a little note here, a technical note. In chapter 2, verse 2, verse 8, and verse 9, the gospel was referred to as the gospel of God. Here it is referred to as the gospel of Christ. Do you think that Paul means two different gospels? No. This speaks to the deity of Jesus. This speaks to the gospel of God is the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the Messiah, of which Paul preached and Timothy also preached and ministered. So Timothy's not just a fellow believer, he's a colleague. And I love that Paul uses the title of fellow worker. He's not my assistant, he's my colleague. That's how we view those who are in partnership in the gospel ministry together. Now why would he need to to do this? Why send Timothy? Why call him a fellow worker and a colleague? I just want you to think about what that does to the personality, personality cult of ministry. How many people do you think who came to faith when Paul was preaching the gospel thought, Paul, he's my pastor? Now, we know that kind of thing goes on because in 1 Corinthians, we see the church is split over Apollos and Paul and Peter and others. That pastor is mine. Timothy, glad he's there, but I like Paul. You know how that works, don't you? Because we're all kind of prone to the celebrity cult of ministry. We like celebrities and we like to feel very personal with an individual. Too many people would probably just want Paul there, not necessarily Timothy. But to have Timothy, to have Timothy to come serve you was the same thing as having Paul because they didn't have a different message. They weren't saying something different. They weren't doing it differently. Their heart beat the same for this church and they're both investing in this congregation. He could have said the same of Silas as well, but Timothy was very special to Paul. That's really instructive to us in how we receive the ministry of other elders and other pastoral staff and members. It's not merely one man that best serves us. You are best served by many men who bring the same truth with the same heart for you so that you should welcome that ministry as you would even those who led you to Christ. But I want you to notice even more, why did he send Timothy? Why did he send him? To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. That's just one singular concern. I wanted to see your faith strengthened. Amidst all the emotion that Paul had, he wants one thing. I want you to have a strong faith. And I'm sending Timothy. That's his job, to strengthen your faith, to encourage you in your faith. 
Why? Because faith can be found to be weak at times. The trial seems to be so much stronger than what faith presently possesses in terms of practical strength. And their faith needed to be built up, just like your faith at times needs to be built up. Your confidence in Christ wanes at times under the burden of the trial and the circumstances or whatever is swimming in your mind. Sometimes trials are depleting, aren't they? They just kind of suck the life out of you. And you find yourself weary, you find yourself discouraged. Sometimes you're, you're living out the Christian life and you think this is monotonous. It's unrelenting. The issues keep coming. It doesn't seem to change. You find yourself dispirited, perhaps disheartened. And your faith then needs to be encouraged, cheered on. The resolve needs to be built up. But I want you to think of this a little bit deeper than just that. What does Paul mean by this phrase, more tangibly? Now think of it this way. What, what, what is he looking for for their faith to be strengthened? Well, faith, as we're seeing it described here, faith is a response to a challenge in their life. Faith is the way they're responding to the difficulties around them. And I want your faith to be strengthened so that the response you have is one of faith, not a lack of faith. What do we mean by that? Well, let me see if I can put it in a biblical picture for you. You remember the Israelites when they were called to go into the land of promise. Numbers chapter 13 and 14, you remember that? And they're on the, they're on the banks of the Jordan, they're ready to go over and they send spies over. You remember, they send the spies over to see the the land. And the land is full of wealth and abundance, but it's also full of challenges. Ah, yes, the Anakim lived there. The giants are there. Some of the spies, when they go over, they see the abundance, but they can only think about the challenge, right? No, They come back and they say, we can't. That's what Numbers 13, 31 says. The men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. They've got weapons. They're trained. We don't have what they have. They're large. We're not. We don't have what it takes to beat these guys. This would be murder. The writer of Hebrews gives a theological explanation for that response to the challenge. In Hebrews 3.19, the writer of Hebrews comments on that we cannot and says this, we see that they were not able to enter into the promised land because of what? Unbelief. A lack of. Of faith. The response was not one of confidence in God, which is what faith is. The response was unbelief. We cannot. When you say, I cannot, that is not faith. I will not, that is not faith. That's unbelief. You see the challenge in front of you and you say, I can't do that. 
That's what Paul's concerned about. Now, back in that illustration of the Israelites, there were two men who encouraged their faith, strengthened their faith, tried to at least, right? In Numbers 14, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes when they heard that report. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And listen to this. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into that land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Do you see the encouragement? This is good. If the Lord's with us, he's going to bring us into all of this wealth. And this beauty, it's ours, brethren. It's more than doable. It's done. But then they warned them, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people or the, of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's strengthening. We're strong, We can do this. We have everything that we need in God to do this. That's the same situation. That's what Timothy was was dispatched to Thessalonica to do, to encourage them. Yes, you can do this. The Lord has goodness for you. It's better on the other end. Keep pressing forward. And even to strengthen them. Brothers and sisters, you have everything you need. God is with you. He'll be behind you. You don't have to give in. I mean, you can imagine how difficult it was to be a Christian in Thessalonica when the whole city despised anything called Christian. It'd be hard to buy or sell anything. It would be hard to maintain employment, interact with your family members, It'd be difficult to not be fearful of just about everyone that you met on the street. Maybe you became resentful and you began to think, I don't know if I can identify as a Christian. I I certainly don't want to do it publicly. I don't want to be a Christian. I'm not sure I like being a Christian. I'm not sure that I'm going to keep believing this. That's where this goes. That's what trial starts doing to you. And that's Paul's fear. That's why he sends Timothy. So beloved, what what is it that you find yourself saying, I can't do this? So when was the last time you said, I'm not going to do this any longer? I can't do this. But what has God said? What has God said? If you're saying, I can't, I won't, that's unbelief. That's why we come here every week. Do you know that? That's why we come here every week because we live out there in the world that's pressing against us, making you think I can't or I don't want to. And you need to come here and you need to hear the word of God, don't you? Yes, you can. You have everything you need. You have the wealth of Christ. You have the resources of the spirit. He has not left you. It may feel like that, but he hasn't. You are in him. It's not over. The final glory outweighs all of the trial. You need to hear it. 
You need to be strengthened. You need to be encouraged every week. You need the fellowship of the believers breathing into your life. Yes, yes, you can do this. Yes, it's good to believe. The abundance to come far outweighs the struggle now. We need to hear the word of God. We need to be around people who will encourage us. We need to invite it into our life. Let me say it this way. About the day that you're thinking... I really don't want to go to church. I'm too tired. It's too hard. Guess what? That's exactly when you need to be there the most, right? But it feels so strong. I don't want to. This is too hard. I'm going to be frustrated. Get there. Listen. Pray. Be open with someone that I am struggling Sit in the pew with them and minister to each other. Open the Bible, read it together, pray with one another. That's the focal point of pastoral ministry, by the way. The emphasis of being a pastor is to be personally, intentionally concerned about how people are responding to the crises of their life and that they are doing that with faith. The point of pastoral counseling, prayer, preaching, teaching, conversation is to strengthen and encourage your faith, to strengthen the responses that you have to the challenges of your life to be that of belief in the truth of God, not unbelief saying, I can't. At the end of the day, what means most to me and to every elder who is a part of this church is that you believe that you trust God's word when you're going through whatever trial you are going through. And when we're listening to you, we're listening to hear, do you believe? You want shepherds who think and feel and want that for you. A pastor's ministry is all about strengthening the flock's faith in God. There is a second expression of what a faithful pastor is passionate about in serving the flock entrusted to him. It's found in verses 3 through 4. A faithful pastor is passionate to disarm the flock's disturbances. A pastor is passionate to disarm the flock's disturbances. You see verse 3. I wanted Timothy to go to you to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that... No one would be disturbed by these afflictions. That's why I sent Timothy. I don't want any one of you, not even one, to be disturbed by these afflictions. This is more than just the purpose for why Timothy was sent. This is also the content of his strengthening and encouraging their faith. The content of that strengthening and encouragement was don't be disturbed by these afflictions. To disarm the impact that the disturbances of the afflictions were having on their resolve to live confidently for Jesus. So you understand that. Disturbance of faith through affliction is connected to a weakened faith. A discouraged faith. But steadfastness within affliction comes from a strong and resilient faith within afflictions. I don't want you to be disturbed. 
That's an interesting word in the Greek New Testament. Many commentators point out that this word was used to describe the vigorous wagging of a dog's tail, like it was agitated. I don't want you to be like that, just wagging around back and forth vigorously. But isn't that what trial does? Isn't that how you sometimes feel in the middle of the trial, back and forth, back and forth, up and down? No, I don't want you to be disturbed and agitated. So what was the message that Timothy came with? From Paul. That would strengthen their faith. Do you see it in the text? I don't want you to be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know, you know this well, you know this personally. That we have been destined for this. We have been destined for this. Now, there's a few ways that we could take that phrase. The we here could refer to Paul along with all Christians. We as Christians, all of us as Christians are destined for trial. Or the we could refer to Paul and his trials and his afflictions and the team of people that he's with, and the afflictions that they were experiencing, and particularly the afflictions that they knew he has gone through, being run out of Berea, run down to Athens, left alone, could be his afflictions. Either way, we have been destined for this, means appointed. Who did the appointing? Well, the assumption is God. Well, why would God do that? We know that we're destined for this kind of trial. Look at verse four carefully. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we, either Paul and his companions or could refer to the whole church, all Christians, we were going to suffer affliction And so it's come to pass, and you know it. And you know it. You know all of it. So how did Paul know that they were going to suffer affliction? Maybe it was some kind of prophetic announcement that the Spirit gave him, and he announced to the church, this is what's coming. It could be that. Or it could be simply a biblical truth. We kept telling you that suffering is going to come to Christians. We're all going to suffer. So, so which is it? Is, is Paul telling them that he himself was destined for this kind of suffering? Well, that could be. And why would that be challenging to them? Because there's a little bit of prosperity gospel in all of us. There is. We kind of think that truth always brings about something positive. Right? The Lord blessed me. You never mean by the Lord blessed me, I went through affliction. You don't, you don't talk about blessing that way. But how many of you would give testimony that there are certain trials that were, ended up being blessings? But, but at a first glance, we, we just don't think of affliction, affliction that way. So many people look and, and they look at people, oh, they're suffering? Well, they must be doing something wrong. Paul can't get a hotel room anywhere in any city He sets off city riots everywhere he goes. Do you think you should really believe what this guy's saying? 
So his suffering might cause them to say, it's not worth believing this anymore. And so they walk away. It's just too costly. And who wants to be identified with that guy anyway? I mean, we have people that aren't here this Sunday because we buried them because of persecution for believing this guy. Why keep this up? Paul has predicted that and even believes that his own personal trials at times are of benefit to the saints. For example, in Acts chapter 20, he was telling the Ephesian elders that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I know it's coming, but I'm going to hold on to the truth no matter what comes. Ephesians 3.13. Therefore, I ask you, he says to the church, not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. They are your glory. How? Well, you could have a little bit of prosperity heart in you when you say, if bad things are happening, don't follow that. Or you could say, look how worthwhile it is to hold on to this gospel, no matter what comes. This man believes this so tenaciously, so fervently, so faithfully, he will suffer and he does it so that we will keep following Christ. He won't give in. It inspires us not to give in. That's to your glory. In 2 Corinthians 1, 6, Paul said, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. If you watch us suffer, our suffering is to show you how to do it well. And not quit. 2 Timothy 2.10, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. What Paul means by that is, I'll go through anything so that I can show the saints how worthwhile the gospel is And this is the trail that is blazed on how to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. So Paul could be saying, I told you that I would suffer like this. Don't be surprised. Don't reject what we taught you because there's suffering. You knew this was coming to us. Don't be discouraged by it. You stay faithful. Well, this could be that he was saying that all of us, Christians, everyone, We're all going to suffer, and you know it. You know that you will. And this is how you disarm the disturbance. How do you disarm the disturbance? Well, you remind people, we're all going to go through this. This is not shocking. It's not something, listen, I've heard Christians who say, I'm praying that we go through persecution. I just want you to know, I'm not praying that. I'm not saying, God, just heap it on us. I am not praying that way. Well, persecution purifies the church. I know. If the Lord decides to do that, he does. But I'm not sitting here saying, God, make us suffer. But I'm not surprised when it comes either. 
And friends, I don't want you to be surprised. You should not be shocked. You should not be disturbed by this. Because the Bible, can you show me in the scriptures anyone who believed tenaciously in God who did not go through significant suffering? Where it was all roses and benefits and blessing and health and wealth and ease? That's not what I read. I read that we're in a world that is impacted by sin and naturally opposes God in the gospel. And when you live as a light for God in a world that opposes him, there's going to be suffering. We all should know that. That disarms the disturbance. Ah, this is what you were talking about. Right. So don't, don't any of you think, well, I see why they are in other parts of the world, but this is America. We're the... We're the land of the free, the Christian nation. We shouldn't go through this. We've been warned. We've been told. We understand. Don't let this, don't let this disturbance make you less than faithful. We should expect it. You remember what Jesus said? John 15 Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus told his disciples, it's coming, expect it. Paul, when he was establishing churches, Acts 14 verse 22 says, he was going around to all the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to, listen to this, to continue in the faith. How did he encourage the Christians to continue in the faith? By saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, how is that encouraging? Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. This is part of it. This is how God refines us. This is how he brings us into the kingdom. There will be challenge. Philippians 1, 28 and 29. In no way be alarmed by your opponents. Do you hear that? In no way be alarmed by your opponents. Your opponents, that's a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Don't be caught unaware. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is coming. Or 1 Peter 4.12, you see, why are you quoting all these verses? So that you are not agitated by your afflictions. It's not just one writer. Listen to it again, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing 
as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What's Peter doing? Disarming the disturbances. Don't be surprised. It's coming. It is to your glory. It will bring you into final salvation. Don't quit. That's good pastoral ministry, isn't it? It's how you disarm the disturbances. They're coming. But there's another aspect to this suffering. What does, what does suffering produce in you? What's the effect of it? See, you, you not only need to know that it's coming, you need to know what it will do for you. Romans 5.3. Not only this, we exult in our tribulations. What? You exult in them? I don't think that means he throws a party. I don't think that means that he's laughing in the midst of his sorrow and suffering. No, He exults because he thinks about the end. What will it produce that causes his heart to say, okay, I'm going to embrace this because the end is far better than what's present. We exult in our tribulation because tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Look what, look what afflictions do. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren. That does not mean laugh out loud. Just, just laugh through it. Tell a joke. Have a good sense of humor. That's not what he's saying. Joy is this sense of satisfaction that cannot be easily moved by circumstances. It's resting in the goodness of God. That's what joy is. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its complete Result. Let it, let it have its completing kind of result. It will finish you. That you would be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. This is what affliction does. It causes you to be more dependent on God so that you will not quit and you make it to the end. A pastor can't take your trials away from you. But he can disarm how you think about the trials and the agitation that comes from the trials by knowing that it's coming and reminding you here's what it's going to produce you can't see it now it doesn't look like it now doesn't feel like it now but trust the word believe have faith in fact a pastor can't be there for you all the time can he That's why pastor's job, a pastor's job, an elder's job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You know what the work of the ministry is? The work of the ministry where each joint does its part is what the writer of Hebrews referred to as watching 
each other. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what we do with each other, isn't it? Keep encouraging, helping, disarm the disturbances. That's a pastor's job. That's his work. That's his passion. There's a third and final one we'll look at this morning quickly. It's just found in verse 5, that last verse. And verse 5 is like a summary of everything that he's been saying. The third expression of what a pastor is passionate about when he serves the flock that's been entrusted to him is that a faithful pastor is passionate to encourage the flock's endurance. To encourage the flock's endurance. I hope you can see the pattern of trial here. Affliction leads to a disturbance. Affliction tests the faith so that you're disturbed to potentially leave the faith. So that means that a pastor's aim in his preaching and his teaching and his discipling and his friendship and every ounce of his relational investment in the flock seeks to strengthen the faith in the midst of affliction so that the disturbances are minimized and you endure until the end. For this reason, Paul says, because of what I I want for you, why I sent Timothy, because of this reason, when I could endure it no longer, same word, when I couldn't stand it, I couldn't hold it in. I sent to find out about your faith, but notice this, for fear, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now remember back in chapter 2 verse 18, it was Satan who hindered Paul from coming to them. And he was reminding them, there is a spiritual battle that keeps me from you. But here, the potential agitation of the affliction is by people who are opposing the gospel. And that is the temptation of Satan. It was people that was keeping Paul from getting back to Thessalonica. And he said that was Satan's work spiritually. Well, there's people afflicting the Thessalonians and that is actually the spiritual work of the tempter to draw them away from the faith. The tempter, just another word for Satan. Matthew described Satan as the tempter when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 3. Do you understand that affliction or opposition to the gospel is a temptation? It is a temptation who finds its roots in Satan's design to get you to disbelieve what God has said. That's what temptation is. That's what affliction is. It's connected together to make you pursue what you feel is true in the moment. But notice Paul's concern here. It was not merely that, merely that they would be tempted, but that they would be tempted to such a degree that Paul's labor, his planting that church, preaching and teaching so that they would believe that his labor would be empty, that they wouldn't believe anymore. There'd be no spiritual, true spiritual result. 
Why would he think that? Because Paul understands. Paul understands the true aim behind every single temptation to your heart. Paul understood that the real satanic plot behind every temptation to sin, and let me just emphasize that again, every temptation, the satanic plot behind every temptation is to ruin you spiritually. It is to get you to stop believing in Christ and following him. Do you understand that that is the goal, the satanic goal of every temptation of your flesh? You say, so if I give in to temptation, I'm lost? No, that's, that's not it. But the plan behind every temptation, even small ones on small things that you just give in to a little bit, the plan is you give in here, you give in a little more tomorrow, you give in a little more the next day. And if we can get you to live a life of giving in to more and more temptation, eventually, guess what you'll stop doing? Altogether, following Christ. Oh, it'd be easy if Satan would show up with the red horns and the pitchfork and the obvious opposition. That's not how he shows up. The sexual temptation that you face is trying to ruin you forever. The temptation for pride and self-promotion, self-preservation, self-glorification is trying to kill you for eternity. That's the goal. Paul knows that. Paul knows that. And you know that. When someone falls into sin and it gets, makes the papers, it's big, traumatic, that kind of fall doesn't happen because of one temptation, does it? It happens because of lots of little ones along the way that just surmounted to a big one. That's how it happens. So when you hear the voice of temptation and the voice of discouragement and the voices of around, that are around you that say, stop believing... You have to kill them, don't you? Every one of them. Because you know behind them is a plot to destroy you. And if you don't think of it that way, you'll give in. You'll give in. Stop listening to the word. Stop being around people in the church. Guess which voice you tend to start listening to most? That's what pastoral ministry is really about. It's the passion of a pastor is to help you see your temptation for what it really is and to have you stop listening to that voice and listen to the voice of Christ. I was reading this week through a chapter in John Piper's helpful book for pastors called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. That's a good one to pull off the shelf and just read and remind you are not a professional And he noted this about the eternal consequences that are attached to the regular functions of pastoral ministry. It was a stark reminder. He says, since preaching and the pastoral ministry in general are a great means to the saints' perseverance, the goal of a pastor is not merely to edify the saints, but to save the saints. What is at stake on Sunday morning is not merely the upbuilding of the church, but its eternal salvation. 
The eternal life of the elect hangs on the effectiveness of pastoral labors. Oh, how earnest we should be in attending to ourselves and the soundness and helpfulness of our teaching. It is the job of a pastor to labor so that none of his brothers and sisters is destroyed. What is at stake in pastoral admonition and in preaching is not merely the church's progress in sanctification, but its perseverance in final salvation. The elect will love the word of God. The elect will grow. The elect will repent. The elect will most assuredly be saved, Romans eight twenty nine to 30. But they will not be saved apart from the faithful teaching of God's word. God has ordained that there be pastor teachers, not only for the purpose of edification, but also for the purpose of salvation. Oh, that our preaching might have the flavor of eternity in it. For eternity is at stake every week. One other writer that I was perusing this week in a book about Paul's view of pastoral ministry, after talking about 1 Thessalonians, he said he indicated, Paul indicated that his pastoral ambition is to work with God towards the completion of God's work. I'm sure there's some of you out there saying, oh, Paul, did you miss your theology here? Too bad the the song, He Will Hold Us Fast, wasn't around when Paul was preaching. He could have sung that, God will hold us fast. He didn't need to worry about it. This might sound a little odd to you because in chapter one, Paul was saying, I know you're elect. And here he's saying, I'm fearful that the tempter might tempt you and you might stop believing. Which is it, Paul? Well, it's, it's a lot like trying to think of salvation. If you think of salvation from heaven's perspective, you always see God's grand plan from beginning to end, and it's, it's comforting, and you need to have that in your mind. But if you engage in the battle, boots on the ground, day to day, arm in arm with people, it doesn't look all that clean, does it? You can't always tell who's believing and who's not, and will they keep believing and will they not? I want you to think of this too. Is it wrong to use the doctrine of election to make you evangelistically lack zeal? Yes. The doctrine of election shouldn't make you less zealous in evangelism. It should make you more zealous. Well, if it's wrong to use the doctrine of election that way, it's wrong to use the doctrine of eternal security to make you think there are no means to keep you in the faith. We need just as much vigor, just as much effort, Just as much as we need effort to evangelize, we need effort to keep people in the faith. But who's doing the work to save and to keep? Not my effort. God does it. And that's what a faithful shepherd does. He's not just passionate. Listen to this carefully, friends. A pastor is not just passionate about how many he can get into the church or into the faith. He's not passionate just to get people to come to faith. He's passionate to see how many he can bring to final salvation. He's passionate to see how many in the flock can he bring with him into glory. That's a faithful pastoral passion. 
He wants to strengthen the flock's faith, disarm the flock's disturbances, encourage the flock to endure. And I know in my heart, I I don't always do that as faithfully as I should. There are temptations in my own heart that I fight and battle. But I know at the end of the day, my expectation when I show up here on the Lord's day and what I'm reminding myself of, what gets me up, what keeps me involved and what I desire for every member of this church as I pray for you name by name, day after day after day, is that you will make it to the end. That is what matters. Pray that you have shepherds like that and that you will respond to shepherds like that. Let's pray together. Father, use this time for your glory and our good. Help us. Help us to see what temptation really is doing. Help us to see how desperately we need to be part of the fellowship of the church and to hear the word. Help us to see how dependent we really are spiritually on the, the saints who are ministering the word to us. We pray, Father, that the expectation of this congregation and what this congregation would desire of its shepherds, of all of its elders, is that they would have elders who care about their faith and disarm all the disturbances that come from affliction and encourage this church to endure to the very end. Lord, would you by your grace grant us that and show your glory through it. And do that through people who are trusting that Jesus alone, that only Christ is sufficient to make us acceptable before you. And help us to hold on to that until the very end, until we see him face to face. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.